0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. All right, who's ready for me to preach on this text today? <laughs> welcome, everyone. Uh, if it's your first time joining us, thanks so much for being here at Hope Brooklyn. My name's Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. And before we jump into this very appealing passage. Uh, I want to take a minute and pray together. Um, Once again, I have to address the community in light of the recent terrorist events that have happened in our city. Um, And as I was thinking and reflecting on on what's happened uh, this past week, I noticed both in myself um, and uh, and, in the respective community that it, it didn't seem like it was the same sense of collective grief that came out. Maybe it was just me noticing and and as I saw why that's the case and it might be true with with you as well, I'm just tired, right? Like it just feels like every week there's something to mourn, there's something to grieve about, there's something to pray, there's another sign that the world is broken. Um, But I think the prayer not only for those who have been affected by this um, terrible event but the prayer for us as the people of God is to not be desensitized. To remember that we have been left in the world as a visible witness um, to the kingdom of God and that we are called to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And we are called to point to um, an alternative story. We are called to point to an alternative table, um, both with grief and with joy um, and acutely feel and be in our world's. And uh, so my encouragement for all of us as we, as we go to the Lord in prayer is that we wouldn't lose our sensitivity, that we wouldn't lose um, the calling that he's put on us to be witnesses. That, yes, the world is broken, but God has not abandoned the world, that he's at work, and he's at work through us. So you pray with me. Lord, we, uh, we lack words. We pray along with the psalmist, along with uh, the people of Israel. How long, O oh Lord? How long will it be until you return? How long will we, will we mourn? When will you turn our mourning into laughter and into celebration? When will we be a people unable to, to break your heart anymore? When will your world be put right? Lord, we lift up those who um, were killed this past week And their families who are grieving enormously today. And we encircle them in spirit and we pray that your peace would just be present. We encircle them with empathy um, and we just open up our hearts to them. And we pray that they would experience your peace and your love that would not take away the pain, but somehow it would provide a way forward in the pain. Lord, we pray for uh, the one who did this and his family. and We pray that your peace would be present. The gospel is that all people are invited to your table. Lord, we, uh, we just ask that somehow from this, your name would be clearly seen and known Um, and that your story would be experienced and lifted up as true. That people from the East and the West would be awoken into the reality that there is one God and one Savior. And Jesus, you have come not to destroy, but to set free, to redeem, and to heal. You are the God who takes broken situations and makes beautiful things from them. We don't know how you're going to do that. But we ask that you do it, because that's what you said. And we open up our hands and say, use us, if you will. Use us. Lord, thank you for this community. Let us not lose our sensitivity to the brokenness of the world. Let us not be afraid to enter into it, because you go before us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we're in a series called The Paradigm. And what we've been doing is we've been going through the story of Exodus, um, which is the second book in the Bible. Um, Many Jews hold it to be sort of the first book. Genesis is like the prologue. Exodus is the first book. And we've been making the claim throughout this series that Exodus is the meta-narrative, that it's the one story, that any person from any time and any age can look at this story and find their story, can locate themselves. And where we're at, we're actually coming up to the end. That's kind of sad, right? Yes, very sad. We're coming up to the end. Uh, We're in chapter 32. We're three quarters of the way there. And we're still at Mount Sinai in the story. We've been at Mount Sinai for the last 12 chapters, actually. So Just a bit of a recap. Chapter 20 through 24, um, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. He gives Moses his philosophy, his way of life, his law. And Moses brings them down uh, and delivers them to Israel. And then he gives them what uh, scholars call the Book of the Covenant, which sort of fleshes out those laws. And then in chapter 25, God tells Moses to go down and he gives them instructions for the tabernacle. Moses is definitely getting his stairmaster work in, going up and down the mountain. His calves, I'm just guessing, are awesome, out of sight. But uh, that he gives, God gives Moses instructions for the tabernacle, and he says, this is gonna be my home. This is how I'm gonna dwell among my people. And then in chapter 31, two weeks ago, we talked about uh, the two artisans, the original Brooklyn hipsters that, that God sort of equips with power, uh, Aholiab and Bezalel. I'm sure they had you know, the curly mustaches and sleeve tattoos, and they probably drank PBR, let's be real, all right? And God imbued them with power and said, I've set you apart, and now you're able to design all these various elements, uh, the ark, the candlesticks, um, all these items in the tabernacle. And then chapter 31 ends, 11 chapters of all these instructions that God's given Moses to give Israel with a command to Sabbath, to rest. Now keep in mind, this is important, we're gonna come back to this. Sabbath is not a day off. All Israel's received so far are instructions. They haven't done anything yet. It's as if God is saying, here's what's gonna define you as my people. Here's what I want you to do. Now, don't do it yet. Before you do anything, I want you to rest. And that's gonna be extremely important for our purposes today. But then after 11 chapters of God revealing himself to people in a way that as we read further in the story, he doesn't do often, we have this story, which frankly is shocking. Like, Let's be honest, we read it or we listen to it and we think there was really no hint. I mean, Israel had complained and grumbled a bit, but there was no hint in this story thus far that Israel was capable of this, this type of rebellion. But like everything in life, there's always more to the story, isn't there? And we start reading deeper, we realize, see, at first when we hear this story, we think, oh, Israel, how could you do that? I'm over here. But then you start examining it further and further, and that distance erases, and then you realize, oh, goodness, I'm Israel. We're going to talk about that. The story opens with this really telling line, this episode. It says, when Moses delayed in coming down the mountain. When Moses delayed. Now, it's interesting that word delayed. It's the Hebrew "boosh," which is a fun word to say. "boosh," And it has a connotation of embarrassment, to be embarrassed or to be ashamed. So it's something going on. There's an element that starts this episode of embarrassment. Israel is embarrassed that, God, that Moses hasn't come back down. Or maybe they're wondering, is Moses embarrassed in them? Is that why he hasn't come down? We don't know, but there's an element of shame, of silliness, of embarrassment. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever done this, maybe it's just me, I'm praying to God for something and I know it's a long shot or I know that there, there are voices that say it's not gonna happen, this isn't true and I'm choosing to believe on faith that God is gonna do this, he's gonna act and he doesn't or at least he hasn't acted yet, or he acts different than I expect. And what's that? when that moment, when you realize that somehow your expectations of how God was gonna act is thwarted, what do you feel first? Silly, don't you? You're like, oh, that's embarrassing. How did I think that was gonna happen? That's kind of getting at what, what Israel's feeling to a certain degree. Something... And their expectations of how Moses would act and how God would act through Moses has not happened. And they feel embarrassed. And so they say to Aaron, come, make gods for us. This Moses, this man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So you're tempted to read this because we're not one to construct literal idols in our society. You're tempted to read this as gross rebellion. It's like, all right, Israel, you're embarrassed. But you don't have to go make idols. Like what you just got the Ten Commandments. Number one was, you know, or number two was no idols. How could you do this? But when you realize that there's embarrassment in place, that they're acting out of embarrassment, that perhaps it's not just gross rebellion. Perhaps it's not spite. Perhaps there's something else going on. See, we realize in the story, Moses has been the only point of contact between God and Israel, right? God has not spoken directly to Israel. God has spoken through Moses, who has spoken to Israel. He's been the only point of contact, and suddenly Moses is gone. And now Israel feels embarrassed and maybe a little bit afraid. They're like, oh, well, who's going to speak to us now? Anybody watch New Girl? A couple of us? It's like an episode in New Girl. where uh, they're three friends, Nick, Winston, and Schmidt. And Nick starts dating Jess. And suddenly Winston and Schmidt are left alone a lot. And they realize we're not friends. That's what they realize. They're like, oh my gosh, we have no basis of friendship outside of Nick. Nick is the only reason that we hang out together. That's kind of what's going on here in an analogous way. Moses is removed from the equation for some reason. We don't know. And Israel's left wondering, Oh, who's this God? How's he gonna speak to us? What are we gonna do? And so they make a decision, a rash decision. I remember I was a counselor at the YMCA for many years. And uh, one time my kids were playing basketball. And you can see this story happening. It might've even happened to you at some point. Um, One of the kids, he shot the, the, the ball on the wrong hoop, right? He made a mistake. As he's shooting on the wrong hoop, everyone lets out a collective, no. They're not getting angry at him, right? They're just saying, no, that's, that's a mistake. And what does he do? As soon as it dawns on him that he shot the ball in the wrong hoop, he gets embarrassed, right? He feels the sense of, oh, silly. And he has a choice. What does he do? Well, he does what any kid would do, what I would do. He lashes out and he says, well, at least I play soccer or something like that. Like, whoo, throwing shade over here. Well done, I I just learned that phrase. I don't know what it means exactly. Hopefully I use it right. (laughs) Phrases are constantly changing, right? He lashed out, out of his embarrassment, he lashed out in fear and in violence. What if that's what's going on in the nature of the golden calf? What if it's not gross rebellion? What if it's more fear-based? And the nature of the golden calf kind of corroborates this reading. It's interesting. Because Aaron tells Israel, bring me all the gold that you have, the gold earrings and that, that you have. But remember the story, where did Israel get this gold? They were in captivity and they're set free. Where did this gold come from? Well, back in Exodus 12, as Israel's about to leave Egypt, God tells Moses to tell Israel to ask the Egyptians for their gold. And how does it read? Exodus 12, this is what it says. The Israelites did as Moses told them. They asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked for. The only reason Israel has gold is because it was a gift from God. God made them favorably disposed in the Egyptian sight, which if we wanna translate that into ourselves, the the positions we have, the incomes we have. The only reasons we're there is because somewhere along the way, probably in many cases, God put us in the right rooms, the right people. A lot of things where we realize that it's all gift. So the gold they have is a gift from God. And what was the gold designated for? And we just read this in Exodus 25 and 26. The gold is meant for the Ark of the Covenant. And it's meant for a lot of the items within the tabernacle. And remember, a tabernacle is just a portable home for God. It's, think a circus tent, right? Think the poles and the, uh, the curtains, and so they can sort of dismantle it and they can travel to the next, part, next land, they can put it back up. The tabernacle is the portable home for God. And within the tabernacle, there's a holy place and a most holy place, and they're items of gold. Specifically, the Ark of the Covenant was to be made with gold. So they have resources, given through God's direction, told by God to use their resources in a certain way, and instead, they use them in a fearful way. Things were making sense. God was speaking, showing up, and then suddenly Moses disappears. What do we do? What do we do? Furthermore, um, I'm grateful to Peter Enns for this comment. He talks about how in the ancient Near East, in in the cultures of the ancient Near East, Idols or cultures did not equate an idol with the God, but it was some sort of earthly representation of that God. So calves or bulls functioned as pedestals for the God seated or standing over them. That's, that's enlightening. Basically, um, it's not that the, the cultures built an idol and said, this is my God. No, in similar fashion to the tabernacle, this represented my God. My God was in the form of this above the idol. But we realize that God told Israel not to make an idol, but to make an ark, empty space. And that would be his home. What what is Israel doing? Do you see it yet? The golden calf represents an alternate point of contact between God and his people. They're afraid. Moses has been the point of contact. Moses has been delivering the words of the Lord to Israel. And then they're commanded to build a tabernacle. And this space, this home is where God will dwell. And that will be the new point of contact between God and his people, between heaven and earth. But in their fear, in their embarrassment, they built a golden calf. Why? Because they constructed a new false religion according to the pattern of what God revealed to them earlier. That's to say this, they live in a world that makes golden calves, but God told them to use the gold for tabernacle. So the calf is Israel's attempt to both honor God's instructions and to appease the gods of their society. You feeling a little more indicted yet? In a sense, what we have with the golden calf is a melding together of the commands of Yahweh and their culture's values. It's not gross rebellion, it's a realistic compromise. And when I say realistic, I want you to read fearful. What they're attempting to do is to appease all possible gods. Yes, our God told us to build the tabernacle with gold, but Moses is gone, what do we do? And in their fear, recognizing that they live in a society and they just came out of an empire that builds golden idols. Like, oh, what if we fuse the two together? It is the fear of absence, says Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, rather than idolatry that lies behind the making of the golden calf. So in a sense, when we make decisions out of fear, we're building a golden calf. So you and I build golden calves every single day. When we make decisions out of fear, Rather than standing on what we know God has said, despite how long it takes, we're building a golden calf. Because fear is Egypt's fuel, not the people of God. Or as Jiddu Krishnamurti says, and I have no idea if I just butchered his name, forgive me if I did. It is not the mark of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. That's what Israel's trying to do. They're trying to obey God but they're also trying to be well-adjusted to the society that builds golden calves. So the first question I have for you is what do you know in your heart God is asking of you or has asked of you or inviting you into, which kind of flies in the face of society's values? But you're getting to a point where you're embarrassed, it hasn't come, God's delaying, he's silent, and you're starting to think, what if I made a realistic compromise? I mean, what if I did this? It still sort of obeys, but it also appeases society's values and society's idols, which make a lot of sense. You're wondering, where is God? But what happens when you make that compromise? What happens when you build that golden calf out of fear? The story continues. And we're told that Israel rose early the next day and they offered burnt offerings brought sacrifices of well-being and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. Guys, it's astonishing. It basically confirms what we're saying. They, bought, they brought burnt offerings, well-being offerings and they threw a festival. You remember from the book of the covenant, Exodus 23, these are all commands that God has asked Israel to do. He tells them, you're supposed to bring burnt offerings to the tabernacle. You're supposed to bring well-being offerings to the tabernacle. You're supposed to have festivals throughout the year. They're obeying God's commands, but not quite. Because they made a fearful compromise, a realistic compromise. And then what happened is in that last line, they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to revel. The, the, The Hebrew word for revel there is basically to let loose, to let go to cast off all restraint. And in many instances, it has a sexual connotation as well. So in a sense, they're trying to live in a broken world as broken people who are being healed by learning what it is, the people of God. And it starts in a realistic compromise to obey God, but also, I mean, how do I live in a vicious world? Like, I'll be found out. But then, it kind of slips and slides And before we know it, we're just going along with the flow. We're lost in the frenzy. In essence, what this is describing? This is writ small, which is the gospel writ large. The essence of sin. Sin in the Greek word means to fall short, to miss the mark. All of us were intended to be God-filled humans. I'm supposed to be a God-filled Russell, a God-fueled Russell, but I'm not. I was born into a world that is broken, where God is absent and coming back, but absent. And so instead I fill myself with all sorts of things, fear being one of them. Moreover, we live in a world where part of the heavens rebelled against God. I know this is tough for us who are very rational thinkers, but the story makes clear that there is also a spiritual battle in place. There are evil forces and evil powers that are at work. And so it starts with a fearful compromise and then we open ourselves up for more and more and we realize, oh, society, actually this makes a lot of sense and before we know it, we've been swept aside. I think this is a phenomenal quote, which I'm about to read, There's a, that describes just this, of what's going on in the story um, and what's going on in many of us sometimes. Albert Speer, which I realize that's how you say his name. He was known as Hitler's architect. Um, by all, he was the only one in the Nuremberg trials who pleaded guilty. And by all accounts, um, he was a respectable guy, of course, growing up. He had no political aspirations. He just liked to build things, design the concentration camps. When he was in prison, his daughter wrote him and basically asked, how could an intelligent man like you, Dad, go along with a guy like Hitler? How does that happen? This was part of his reply. It's what he says. He goes, sometimes in the life of a people, collective suggestion shows its effect. Sometimes in the life of a people, enough people start saying something that it starts to sound really true. Man, that's powerful, isn't it? Man is full of bad instincts, which he tries to suppress. But if the barriers once give way, you might read, if you build a fearful compromise, then something dreadful is unleashed. Some individuals escape the common folly, but when it's all over and one regains awareness, the world takes its head in its hands and its ask, how did I come to do it? One anthropologist will call this the madness of crowds where collective suggestion and our bad instincts and as the Christians we would, we would say, uh, evil forces in play start to take their effect. This is the evolution of sin. It starts with embarrassment or you might say their eyes were open and they realized they were naked. Harkening back to the Genesis story, they're embarrassed. What do we do? And they make decisions out of fear and it just spirals. Ending and letting go and casting off restraint. So what are some alternate points of contact? What are some of these golden calves that we build in our day to day? Obviously there are many, there are many. One, and I think one of the most glaring for us in the West is money and our approach to it. I'm grateful to um, Rabbi Sachs, who's British by the way. I don't know if I ever mentioned that. Um, He pointed out this modern-day example, which was really spooky. So he talks about Damien Hirst, who's a British sculptor. And he sold one of his sculptures for 10.5 million pounds. That was one of the largest sums ever sold for a piece of art for a living artist. And he sold it one week before the Great Crash in 2008. And the, the title of the sculpture? The Golden Calf. Right? You can't make that up. You can't make that up. What the piece was attempting to demonstrate is what happens when gold, a medium of exchange, is transformed into an object of worship, where the worship of the creator is transferred to elements of the creation, and then collective folly starts to ensue, and irrational, delicious madness starts to, starts to take place And as as Rabbi Sack says, when the money rules, we remember the price of things and forget the value of things. And in that specific instance of 2008, it was over houses. And so people, housing prices started to go up and people who couldn't afford a house started to get in on this because there's money to be made. And then lenders realized they could make money and so they lent disgusting mortgages. Be like, oh, we can do this. And so we all sat down to eat and drink and we rose up to let it go, right? Right? What the story of Exodus is trying to teach, what God is trying to teach his people, Israel, and what God is trying to teach you and me is that he cares about the value of things. Value, true value of things is neither earned nor lost. It's given by God. The world cares, and we should read there, is fearfully obsessed about the price of things. And the price of things changes and fluctuates based on exaggerated confidence and rumors and evil powers and all sorts of things. God is saying, turn away from the price of things, which the world, the madness of crowds is obsessed about and look back to me and remember the value. And our entire life as the people of God is spent trying to remember and believe what are the things of life that have real value and allow that to dictate how we live. So then how do we learn that? And here's the easy part. Well, maybe, we'll see. The golden calves, I asked, what's yours? There's, there's manifold golden calves. There's manifold ways that we make fearful decisions, fearful compromises with society's values, society's gods, manifold ways. But in the story, embedded in the story, what is the antidote God would give his people Israel? There's one answer. There's not manifold answers. You don't have to do any analyzation. I'm gonna tell you, what God would say, if you wanna wanna return to learning what the value of life is and forgetting about the price of things, as the world says, God would give you the answer. You wanna know what it is? Sabbath, Sabbath. I know it's not in chapter 32, but it's embedded in the structure of the story. Sabbath is when the people of God remember and choose to live into the real value of things. So here's the thing about the structure of the story. Chapter 31 ends, and remember chapter 20 through 31 is all about God giving Moses instructions for, the, for his people, Israel, both in uh, the book of the covenant and laws and in the tabernacle. And then after he commissions Bezalel and the 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 Brooklyn artisans, then he says, he commands Israel to Sabbath. Don't start any work. First, take a day of complete rest and thanksgiving to me. Chapter 32 is our chapter. They don't Sabbath. Instead, they grow afraid and they make a golden calf. Chapter 33 and 34, which we'll go into next week, is Moses with God on top of the mountain and Moses interceding on behalf of the people, trying to get God to forgive the people. But then chapter 35, when that starts back up, Moses returns back down the mountain and he starts addressing the people again. And the first thing he says to them is commands them to Sabbath. Sabbath is a bookend to this story. Y'all know what bookends are, right? Where you have your books on the shelves and the bookends. So when it's the last words they heard that Israel heard from Moses in chapter 31 is a command to Sabbath. And the first words that they hear from Moses after this, this tragedy is a command to Sabbath. Sabbath is the antidote to the golden calf because it is the day when we stop thinking of the price of things and focus instead on the value of things. On the Sabbath, we can't sell or buy. We can't work or pay others to work for us. It's the day entirely dedicated to the celebration of the things that have value but no price. I don't have time to go fully into what Sabbath is, but don't think of Sabbath like a day off. Don't think of it as passive. We already said that After Israel receives the instructions of what they're about to do, but they haven't done, God says, rest. It's more active. Sabbath is you and I engaging in the things of life that have value and no price and that are life-giving. Full of celebration. So on the Sabbath, we sleep in. We let our bodies wake us up. Not, Not the economy, not duty, not the clock's. Maybe for some of you, you let your children wake you up. But we sleep in. And then on the Sabbath, we make eggs and bacon instead of oatmeal. Or maybe for some of you, you make oatmeal instead of eggs and bacon. Or maybe for some of you, you just eat breakfast at all. But we don't turn on our phones. We leave our phones off. So we're not ruled by the clock. Instead, we're engaging in the day with total freedom, excuse me. On the Sabbath, We take a walk just because, and we don't plan our route out, and um, we don't know how long it's gonna take. We just start walking, and with every step of the day, we're giving thanks to the God who created eggs and bacon, and we're giving thanks to the God who created sleep, and we're giving thanks to the God who created walks just for the heck of it, and trees that change in the fall, and we invite our friends over, and on the Sabbath, we read Psalms together, or poems, and we celebrate one another. We, we give thanks to the God who created friendships. And we don't have our phones on. We leave those off all day. And it's a day of thanks. Its Sabbath is the return to the way things were to be. To see the world as God sees the world, where there is value, not dominated by the prices of a frenzied crowd. And to demonstrate How co-opted the church in America and in the West has become by this, by this idea of Sabbath. And I'm grateful for my pastor in Portland who pointed this out. Remember in the Ten Commandments, right? uh, The first three deal with man's or human's relationship with God. So he says, no other gods before me, don't make idols, don't misuse my name. And then the fourth one is the Sabbath, right? And then five through 10 are all about uh, human relationships, sociality. So it's almost like the Sabbath is the glue that brings God and humans together. But I, as your pastor, if I break any of the 10 commandments, I get fired, right? If I start building idols, if I kill someone, if I um, dishonor my mother and father, which would be awkward because they're out here today, I get fired. If I start working seven days a week on behalf of the church, you might be tempted to give me a raise, right? Look how much he cares for the church. That's how co-opted we become with this. When God is saying the answer to not defining ourselves by the world, by returning to how he sees us and sees one another, is a day of rest. Before any work, a day of rest. The secret of God is in complete rest. So at the end of Exodus 31, where he's commanding Israel the Sabbath, he says, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. But on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now here's what's fascinating about that word refreshed. It's the Hebrew word nefesh, nefesh. And it's used over 760 times in the Old Testament. Uh, It basically means living soul. That's the best way to translate it. It means a living being, a living soul. But it's always used as a noun. Only about three or four times, a handful of times, is it used as a verb. Here's one of them. It's as if God is saying, on the seventh day, I rested and I was sold. S-O-U-L, apostrophe I was sold on the seventh day. When you say I was refreshed, I was Sold but you and I, what are we called? We're called souls, we're called nefeshs, we're called living beings. It's as if to say we are most ourselves when we're resting. We are most what God created us to be on the Sabbath. The Sabbath fuels us. We are God-filled, we are Sabbath-filled souls. Maybe that's why he had them build him a tabernacle and an ark, empty space and time with which he can dwell and simply be. It's almost like, you all remember that kid's story, Are You My Mother? with the little bird who walks around asking every creature, Are you my mother? Are you my mother? And then he finally matches up. That's kind of what life's about. You and I are walking around and we ask the economy, is this what I was made for? Are are you my mother? Like is is this what I was made for? And then we ask relationships and we ask all sorts of things. Is this what I was made for? Is this why I'm alive? And we won't find that match until we find it in the day of Sabbath. The day of rest, where we're not ruled by any clock or any artificial metrics, where things are put in their right relation, where it is a day of utter celebration to our God. That's when we'll say, oh, this is what I was made for. Which boggles your mind, doesn't it? Like, I don't believe it to a certain degree. I don't believe it. I'm like, I don't have to earn it. It's just a gift just a gift to enjoy all the best things of life. Yeah, that's the gospel, that's the gospel. And here's what's gonna happen the first time you do it. The first time you actually turn off your phone for a complete day. Don't check email, don't check social media. Try to to not think about work and the demands of work and the sorrows. The first time you do this, by about 4 p.m. you're gonna be depressed and anxious and you're gonna wanna turn on your phone. (laughs) Why? Because I wanna check my email and look at my social media. Why? Because then I'm reminded of how much the world's willing to pay for me. I'm reminded of my market price, right? To turn off your phone for one day and a culture that demands that you're always on it is to scream, Jesus Christ is Lord. Anna just told me about, uh, she's she's a wedding cinematographer. She told me about a friend of hers who actually just lost a client, a wedding client, like two weeks before the wedding date. uh, Their client had already paid a deposit and canceled the contract. And the reason why is because the client had emailed um, Anna's friend who was either a photographer, like shooting the wedding. And uh, the friend, I don't know why, but like for a week hadn't been able to get back to her. And the client said, I've lost confidence in you. And so I'm canceling the contract because she didn't respond for a week. That's how like, and I feel it too, how enslaved we are to being instantly responding, instantly answering, having it now. But to turn off your phone for a day and to remember the things that have value and no price, the things that are gifts. And it will be depressing because you and I are so addicted to what the world thinks of us. So addicted to it, we need it. We need to know how important we are. We need to know how much the world's willing to pay for me. <laughs> but to turn off for a day and to give thanks to God is to scream, Jesus Christ is Lord. In a world that is frenzied and clamoring to prove their price, God is telling everyone, stop, don't prove your price. Remember your value, because that's a given. Your value's already there. Prices fluctuate based on fear and exaggerated confidence. Value is unchanging and eternal as a sold one. It's almost like um, the scene from Titanic. Anyone ever seen Titanic in here? Yeah. I'm not even embarrassed of that. My hand's going up. That is a movie and a half right there, literally. Um, Very long. But y'all remember the scene where uh, Rose is dating Jack? It's kind of still secret. I think it's secret. I don't remember. Um, And Rose takes Jack to one of her parties up on the top, top deck. And it's a party where everyone's dressed up and it's kind of stuffy, and it's a lot of bowing and curtsying, and, um, and it's like, oh, what is, what, what is this? And then Jack, later on, he puts a note in her hand and she meets him in that iconic scene by the clock. And what does he say? He goes, let me show you a real party. Like only the Irish know how to do, guys, let's be real. Get that banjo out, though I will say, Anna and I, we filmed a Haitian wedding the other day. Oh my gosh, Haitians know how to party. Like, <laughs> We were filming and we were just moving. We were looking at each other like, can we get out here please and and dance? I think the Irish and the Haitians would throw a really great party. Anyway, I digress, I digress. And what does he say? He says, let me show you a real party. And then he takes her down and it's full of laughter and full of relating. Parties are real things. The party as she was doing it was full of market prices. It was about social mobility and pretense where parties are really about the true value of a party is enjoying your friends, laughter, sharing stories. That's what a party's for. It's almost like God is taking Israel's hand and goes, all right, the, for these six days, the world's telling you what being alive really is. But now, let me show you what it really means to live. Come with me into the Sabbath. But how does he do that? Right? For the for the close readers among us, which I know you all are. How, if, if, if the Sabbath is the moment where we remember our value and how it's unchanging. How is God able to do that? Because keep in mind, Israel built the golden calf. Israel has let themselves go. They're reveling. Like, how how are they allowed to enter into that rest? Well, we have to take sufficient stock of the rest of the story. What happens? God tells Moses to go down and Um, he says, leave me alone, this is a stiff-necked people, I'm gonna destroy them. And Moses, in a sense, kind of has to talk God off the cliff and say, don't do that, don't do that. What does he say? He says, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Moses begged God to forgive his people. He said, don't do this, don't do this God. But then what's he do? He goes down the mountain. So before God, he begs for forgiveness for the people. But then he goes down the mountain and he is crazy. He throws down the tablets, he grinds them up into dust, he grinds the calf up, he makes the Israelites drink it, which a lot of scholars don't know what to make of that. I think it might be an ancient cultic ritual don't know. And 3,000 people die. He commissions the Levites and he destroys, he wipes out the sin among the people and 3,000 people die that day. Now, that's a discomforting section, right? What do we do with this? The role of the mediator is that he begs God, he petitions God to forgive the people, but then he goes down and he destroys the sin amongst the people. Where's the paradigm in this? Right? Right? Where's the paradigm? Well, I know many of you ask, and I ask sometimes, why does it feel like the God of Israel seems so different than Jesus, right? They they sort of don't square up sometimes. Why does the God of Israel seem so different than Jesus? But then you're sort of caught off guard by one of the Hebrew words, where it says that Moses sought the favor of the Lord. He implored the Lord. The word is Yachal, which means he weakened himself. Moses weakened himself before the Lord and begged for forgiveness, and then he came down the mountain and destroyed sin. And then you remember when you think of Jesus, the God of Israel is the God who weakened himself and wrote himself into the story. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, have the same mind among you that was in Christ Jesus, who was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. The God of Israel is the one who humbled himself as Jesus did. And he came down the mountain angry at sin and he destroyed sin amongst the people. But how did he do it? This time he didn't wipe out 3,000 people. This time Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus fulfills both functions of the mediator in himself. He weakened himself before God and wrote himself into the story. And then he took the sin, he absorbed it all into himself and swallowed it up. He destroyed it. Jesus is the new and better mediator. And then if you think back to the Ten Commandments, remember what I said earlier, the Sabbath is kind of like the glue that holds the top and the bottom together. In the Sabbath, in this space and time, God and humanity meet. And then you realize That Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the new and improved Sabbath. In him, in the final mediator, he both weakened himself before God and dealt with sin. And therefore, all those who are invited into his name and who enter into it, enter into the eternal Sabbath rest. In Jesus You and I become who we really are. So what would it look like to enter into a Sabbath that way? What would it look like at every step of the day to give thanks to what Jesus has done and to praise him at every moment of a day of rest? I wanna invite the worship team back up as we finish this. Abraham Heschel, um, he said the Sabbath, is no time to remember your sins, interestingly enough. The Sabbath is no time to remember your sins, it's no time to confess, it's no time to even repent or pray for relief. The Sabbath is only a day of praise, not a day of petitions. I'm reminded of the song, Oh How He Loves Us by John Mark McMillan. We sing it here sometimes. Or he goes, he loves us, oh how he loves us. And then in the bridge, um, the line goes, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. I love that line. Which is the goal of God. The goal of God is to return to his earth, not to destroy but to kiss. And it's probably gonna be a little sloppy. Heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. And then what's the next line? I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way he loves us. Heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss and my heart turns violently inside of my chest and I don't have time to maintain my regrets when I think about the way Jesus loves us. He's looking at you and he's beckoning you, inviting you, coming to the rest of my father. Come into your eternal rest, where you take walks and make bacon and eggs, and you don't have to listen to the voice of the world anymore. My voice is enough for you. Don't worry about the sin. Yes, I know you'll make another golden calf. I paid for it already. I, who was no sin, I became sin for you. And don't worry, I've already interceded on behalf of the Father, I've weakened myself. It's all paid for. I am the new and eternal Sabbath rest. Come to me. You don't even have time to ask for forgiveness anymore. You don't have time for it. Don't even worry about it. Forget what's old. Come into the new, where love and delight reigns forever and ever. That's the invitation of the Sabbath. So for you and for I, who are tempted every day to listen to the voice of society, which is always ascribing market values on you and I, how much the world's willing to pay or not pay for us, my challenge for all of us it's to find that day. Maybe start with half a day if that's all you can do and shut off your phones and call together your closest friends and enter a day where time is sort of forgotten, where you do the things that have no price but all value, where you take walks and make breakfast and read poetry and play video games and whatever else you do. And you listen throughout every moment of it. You're worshiping and thanking Jesus for what he's done. Will you pray with me? Lord, once again, we're confronted by the thought, like the fear even, that this just seems too good to be true. Your gospel, your good news seems too good to be true. that you, Jesus, are the mediator who allowed us to enter into your Sabbath rest. We're confronted daily, Lord, by the lies of the evil one and the fearful words of a world that desperately needs you. Would you give people courage, would you give my friends here courage to actually defy culture's values and to choose to believe that they will discover who you are, Jesus, in a day of rest, that they are made to rest with you and one another? Would you give people courage to shut off their phones? To write a letter And though we know it'll be hard at first, because we're not used to it, would you continue to encourage us what we were made for? We were made to be the refreshed ones. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know who you are, Jesus, or um, maybe coming back to this story for the first time in a while, and if their heart is stirred by this, I would pray that you give them courage to surrender their lives, to open their hands and to find forgiveness in you, Lord. That those words, that they don't have time to maintain their regrets when they think about the way you love them, that that would pierce their souls and overwhelm them with your love, Holy Spirit. Would you give them courage to say yes to following you? Lord, we are your people. We're grateful for what you're doing. Reveal to us, Lord. Reveal to us your words of life. Tell your people that you're not asking anything from them other than to let it go, to let all the crowns that they have in their hands, to let them go and to walk into the Sabbath rest with you, Jesus. We know that's not gonna change in one sermon, but give us courage to start entering into that. And Jesus, it's because you were dead and you were raised to life and are alive right now that we can pray and that we have hope. That's in your name, Amen. amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.